With a heavy heart, I bring you this episode in a time where our country is fighting against inequity and racism. During this duration of distance learning, the subject of equity has come to the forefront of many discussions about not only our new system of learning, but our traditional educational system. My hope is this conversation with Dr. Sheldon Aikens, the host of Leading Equity Podcast, begins your search for systems of inequity and drive action for change. Welcome back, everyone, to Aspire, the Leadership Development Podcast, where we will be discussing the visions, inspirations, and experiences from top educational leaders. My name is Joshua Stamper, and you can connect with me on Twitter or on Instagram at Joshua double underscore Stamper. Well, I'm so excited to have Dr. Sheldon Aiken on the podcast. He is an amazing podcaster and is doing so much work in equity. I am a huge fan of his, and I just wanted to thank you so much for being on the podcast. Hey, Josh, man. It's a pleasure. I appreciate you having me on your show. This is an honor. Thank you. Yes, my pleasure. And so, as always, I'd like to have my guests just talk about their leadership journey. And you have quite the journey as you've been a teacher, a principal, and now you are a director of special education. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny because I never thought I would be a principal. Uh, I, I was one of those teachers that were like, heck no, there's no way I'm doing that. Like, you see the heat that principals we take in with parents and dealing with students and teachers getting upset at them and dealing with finances and all that. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to do it. So I went to school, got my master's degree in leadership, ed leadership. I mean, I'm saying I don't want to be a principal, but then I go to get a, a master's in leadership. And it just so happened that I finished my degree. I got my master's and I got laid off for my, my job. I was brand new teacher. Enrollment was shifting. They had to, to let somebody go. I was a new one. in, so first one out. So I'm sitting there putting in apps, looking all over the place, trying to find another teaching job. My wife is like, yo, Sheldon, what are you doing, man? You got a master's in leadership. You got several years of teaching experience. Why don't you put in for a, a principal job? And I'm like, I don't know, man. That's not for me. That's not my thing. I don't want to go that route. And she pushed me. I'm like, I got to give a lot of credit to my wife for, for just being that cheerleader for me and just yeah. really being that one that pushes me. And she was like, yo, just put in, see what happens. And yeah, I started looking around and I'm, I'm not one of those people that's like, okay, I live here. This is where I want to be. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not going to look outside the state, outside my, my district or any of those kind of things. Like I looked nationwide, U.S., mm-hmm. and uh, found a job in Louisiana for a principal, small school. I put in, I got the job, and then I became a school principal. <laughs> wow, interesting. And you know, from there... I spent a year there and then uh, I actually got a call from another school that heard about me because um, the work that we were doing at that school, it was a private school. What they had going on was the vouchers in Louisiana. It's basically uh, it's cheaper for the state to pay for students to go to my school, private school, than it was for them to keep them in public school. Oh, wow. On top of all of that, uh, a lot of the schools in the area that I was serving, they they do the you know report card kind of grades, you know, A, B, C, D, F. And so I think if you had a C, D, or F rate, rating, you would qualify for this voucher. And so I got us all set up, and we ended up getting awarded uh, 50 additional seats to our school okay. from the voucher. So the state will pay 50 students to come to the school. So another, I don't know, word got around somehow, and another school in Oregon, they reached out to me. And they're like, yo, we want you to do that for us. We want you to grow our enrollment. And I'm like, okay, I, I guess. So I ended up going to a bigger school. I was finishing up my PhD. So I finished that, and I moved to higher ed. So I moved to Idaho. So that's where I'm at now. I started working at the university in a program called TRIO. 
being a leader in that position uh, as an assistant director. And man, I miss the kids full time. And yeah. it's great. But, you know, being in higher ed is a lot different than being K-12 full time. Yeah. So over about a year and a half ago, I switched back to K-12. So now I'm a director of special education. I work here on a Native American reservation here in Idaho. Oh, that's amazing. So I want to talk about that transition because you said you went straight from a teacher to a principal. And that is quite a difference as far as a position. So what was maybe a, a misconception that you had going into the position or something that was enlightening after you got the job and you started going through that process? Well, you know, the, most of my hesitation with going into leadership in general was because, first of all, I had never experienced these things. It's just me seeing it yep. and, uh, and my perception of what it would be like if I was a school leader and having to deal with teachers coming at me and parents. That was the one that really got me. It was like, okay, my colleagues, and I'm young too. I was 29 when I became a principal. So it was like the fact that a young dude coming in, being a principal and running a school, you got veterans at your school, you got all this like clout and all this stuff that I'm trying to deal with. And so I think that was the biggest fear that I had. Mm -hmm. Uh, But once I got in, I realized, you know what? it's not as bad as I thought. You know, you quickly try to find some mentors and like people that have already been principals and have been doing this for a while and just being able to reach out to them and say, hey man, I need some help. I don't know what the heck to do. I reached out to my former principal who laid me off (laughs) in the beginning. And I was like, hey, I need some help. And she was like, give me pointers on like how to deal with the school board and all this stuff. So it was so helpful for me. So you don't have to be alone when it comes to being a school leader. And I think that's one of the, I would say one key takeaways. I thought that, you know, you're on this island, you're isolated, this is what you have to do. And you had to sleep almost at the school and that kind of stuff. But then I realized, no, you're not alone. You don't have to be alone. I mean, you could choose to, but you don't have to be, that's your choice. I wanna talk about the, the networking piece because you obviously had a, a broad net over the country and then you were discovered you know, from across the country in Oregon, how did that even come to be? How did they even hear about you? And was it something that you were doing over social media or were you hitting conferences or how did that social network reach all the way across the country? To be honest, Josh, I'm not a hundred percent sure how they heard about me. I, I, I wish I had this amazing story like, yeah, you know, I did this and then all of a sudden it led to this person. I don't really know. I just got a random call, like literally got a random call. Now I would say, that uh you know part of okay so we got 50 seats Mm -hmm. i had i still had to market i still had to advertise to come to my school right you know i went you know we canvassed the neighborhood i mean me and my other teachers we went door to door knocking on door hey did you know there's a school right in your neighborhood oh i didn't know right so we went we did the whole night and I mean, I was on news. I was doing the local news. I was doing newspapers and, um, you know, doing all those kind of things. So, yeah, there's a little bit of social media. So I don't know if that is how people heard about me. I would say somehow, somehow folks heard and they were like, yeah, we just, we, you know, we, we need a principal. Uh, we heard about you. We really need to grow our school. Would you come out? And so, yeah, that's why I ended up in Oregon. Uh, again, one of those things, just random <laughs> Random instances, and, yeah. and here we are. Was that an initiative or something that you valued as far as telling your story and getting, you know, like you said, the news out and, and get reaching out to the community? Were you trying to showcase, you know, all the things that you were doing within your school? You know, I would say, you know, private schools, right, you know, typically are for the privileged. 
I usually have to have some sort of money, some funding in order to pay tuition and all that stuff and all the perks that come along with going to a private school. And so what was really important to me, and this is like pre-leading equity center and all this stuff that I do now, but this was just like, I didn't have a name for it. Mm -hmm. This is like six, seven years ago. I didn't have a name for it, but I knew that there were kids, especially kids in our neighborhood that on their own wouldn't be able to come to my school. And that was important to me. And I'm like, it's nice to have uh, all the bells and whistles, but, and and have a school and and be able to operate. But if the people within the neighborhood, your community, if they can't come to the school for whatever reason, that's a problem to me. And so I was excited to walk the neighborhood and and be able to knock on doors and, hey, come by the school. My name is Sheldon and, and let's do this. I would love to have your child at my school. On top of that, I would even add that as a black administrator in a black neighborhood where my school was in a primarily black neighborhood, uh, that was important to me as well, yep. to to have students to be able to see leadership with people that look like them. Yep. Uh, that was important to me as well. So just being able to provide opportunities. And again, I didn't really know what equity was. I didn't, I didn't have a name behind it. It was just more of, this was important to me. This was making sure that I can allow or at least help as many students as I could to get into the school. Yeah. And that's a great segue as far as the work that you're doing now. You're the founder of the Leading Equity Center. And so I just want to know about that journey too, because you were talking about, you know, you didn't have a name for it at the time, but you saw that there was a need there and, and it's obviously grown into what it is now. So what is kind of the backstory to now your amazing center? Thank you. I, you know, I started podcasting. Let's go back, uh, let's see, was it 2018, I want to say? Mm-hmm. I went to the National Principals Conference out in Chicago, and I met Danny Bauer. Mm-hmm. I met Jethro Jones, William Parker. Uh, I met those guys, and I went to their session. And I was like, I knew prior to going into that session, I was like, I wanted to produce content. I didn't know what I wanted to produce. Sure. Uh, initially, I was leaning towards blogging. And so I went to their session, Podcasting 101. And Jethro literally interviewed someone, posted and published, like published the episode, everything right there in front of us. That's awesome. And I saw that, like, they shared all the tools they're using, mics and every equipment, everything. And I'm like, dude, this is not hard. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after it was over, the, I sat down with them and I stayed after and I was like, just ask some questions. You know, how do I do this? Would you be on my show? All that stuff. Right. And so. Yeah, it, it, that was it. That was the birth of the podcast, Leading Equity. And then you know how it is. I mean, you're a podcaster. Yep. I mean, you, you do an episode and you don't know if anybody's going to listen to it, man. It's like <laughs> one of those kind of things. And then like all of a sudden I started getting Twitters, you know, people responding and I'm starting getting emails and I'm like, oh, oh, oh okay, I, I guess I should, you know, put a little bit more effort, sure. <laughs> a little bit more effort into my, my production. And then from there, it was just like, I started getting a lot of questions about, you know, how to be more culturally responsive and, and how to provide equity in their schools and, and just all of these questions. There were a lot of them were the same. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm going to start, uh, I'm going to do an online class. Yep. And so last year I started an online class teaching through a culturally diverse lens. And um, that just kind of took from there. I needed an LLC and I started, I you know, did all the paperwork and started the Leading Equity Center. And, you know, a year later, We've gotten, you know, I've done virtual summits and, and events and course and, and I do webinars. I just got off a webinar earlier today. I just do as much as I can because I want to support teachers. That's that's important to me because I think about our kids. I have kids and I'm, I live in Idaho. There's not a lot of black people out here. Yeah. And it's important to me to help teachers, especially those teachers, primarily our education force is white, 
and help a lot of our, our teachers who have students in their classroom who don't look like them. Uh, students of different races and cultures and ethnicities and languages that they speak and being able to support them as best as I can. That's that's my goal. That's what I do. Sure. Just talking about equity in general, because that is a really broad term (laughs) and it hits a lot of different things. So what was it that you saw specifically that you felt like you wanted to kind of hone in on to help white educators like myself that our experience is obviously very different than some of our students. What were some things that you really wanted to hit home, either like on the online courses, the webinars or the summit? You know, let's talk about demographics for a second to, to, to answer that question. I want to say it's about 83% white as far as our educators, and it's about 52% students of color as far as students go, right? So there's there's clearly a mismatch there. Yeah. Now, I, I am one of those people that subscribe to, you know, our teachers have the best intentions. Often, it's just either some sort of a bias, some sort of implicit bias, things that we just don't necessarily know. I mean, yes, there's flat out racism out there and I can give you all kind of examples there, right? But I think there's a lot of us, a good majority of our teachers and not just white teachers, I would would add in teachers of color in general, even myself, right? That want to do the best for their students. But when we have students that are different than us, developing relationships is not always the easiest thing. Mm -hmm. And that's important to me, again, thinking about, okay, how do we make sure that all of our students are successful? Because if we just give our cookie cutter, one size fits all approach to education, which is typical, which is traditional, which tends to favor our white community. So if we just tend to just operate in that sense, in that silo, then there's a lot of folks that aren't being reached. There's a lot of students whose individual needs aren't being met. To couple that with being a special educator, uh, myself and knowing that before I got into special education, there were so many things that I was frustrated about that I didn't recognize, like not having the patience for students and expecting students to be able to do certain tasks or holding them accountable for things that I could do as they're at their age. Mm-hmm. But now that I'm working in special education, it's just like blowing my mind with all these missed opportunities that I've had over my teaching career, yeah. because or even as a principal where I where kids would get in trouble. And if I just knew more than I know now, it, it things would have been different. So again, anything that I can do to help support educators who want to do the best job that they can, but don't necessarily have the tools or the resources to help their students thrive, that's what I'm all about. So if it's a, a summit, if it's a webinar, if it's a course, all that information is going to be in there. And it's going to be with an equity lens. I think a lot of our teacher preparation programs, they boast that, oh, you know, social justice and, and, and you know, they use all these words, but they may have one course that is, and they'll throw everything all in there at once. So it'll be a special education, it'll be a diversity course, right? So it'll include uh, equity and uh, uh, special education, LGBTQ, and all. It's, they throw everything into sure. this one course, maybe two if we're lucky. And then maybe there's an elective that, you know, you can take this, but you're not necessarily encouraged to take it. They're not pushing it, right? right? So I'm a believer of we need to embed diversity. We need to embed equity and inclusion into everything that we do. So math course, science course, uh, English, no matter what course it is. PE, yeah. it needs to be embedded. It doesn't need to be separate. And I think sometimes we make that mistake where, Oh, well, let's just throw everything in this one course and, and we'll, we'll knock it all out. No, it needs to be an everyday thing. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that's what makes the Leading Equity Center different than some of the other courses I see and other programs and products that I see is it's all through an equity lens. That is at the forefront. And and like you said earlier, equity is so broad that it covers so many different things. It's important to me to to start with equity as opposed to having equity or diversity as a side thing. And then we're still teaching from a colonial perspective. Right. I want to talk about that a little bit too is, you know, you had some wonderful points in that last answer about teachers not being prepared, what they would deem as a troublemaker. And unfortunately, the data, you know, shows that students of color have more punishment toward them than other students. So is there something that you all, you know, work with schools on as far as maybe it's restorative practices or tools that teachers can can use to work past that bias and, and make sure that they're helping students all at the same equal level? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you asked that question because, you know, the way you and I probably grew up as far as going to school, I mean, we're used to probably, you know, I know, I know I've had my share of being uh, suspended oh, yeah. and, and, and and definitely had my tr- my share of, of, of detentions back in the day. Okay. Oh, great students. So, yes. Yeah. <laughs> the, the young Sheldon was a lot different than the older Sheldon. So I say all that to say, you know, the things that we used to do and uh, quote unquote traditional practices, especially when it comes to discipline, has has needs to change. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know how familiar you are with the school to prison pipeline, but okay. that is a thing that exactly. I mean, we got we got a four year olds. we got three year olds getting locked up and, and, and put in handcuffs and escorted out. I mean, how traumatic is that? Yeah. You got young ones being you know escorted by the police resource officer and all that stuff. You know, that that's a problem. You know, to me. I mean, there's so much research that shows the importance of keeping kids in your classroom as opposed to sending them out. I've had trainings where the conversation is centered around, well, you know, uh, what is the protocol when a student is kicked out of my classroom? We send them to the office and they end up coming right back to my classroom. Uh, What's the protocol? And and my, my response is, why are we sitting here trying to figure out what to do when our students leave? Why don't we figure out how to keep them there? You know, what are you doing as a teacher to where you're repeatedly kicking kids out? That's your go-to method is I'm going to kick this child out. <laughs> I remember there was a tie, right? So uh, I was talking to a teacher and she was sharing with me how, and this is proud, like a proud moment, like, you know, I'm in control kind of, kind of a thing, right? And she's like, yeah, I had 16 students from the day in lunch detention. And the lunch detention, the way they have it set up is basically the kids, you know, kind of wipe tables down, take out the trash, put chairs on top of the table, that kind of stuff. And I'm like, wait, you had 16 kids that you've placed into lunch detention and you're proud of that. That's on you. Why do you have so many kids? What are the kids going to do? 16 kids. What's the lunch people supposed to tell these kids, right? right. You wipe one time and you wipe the next time. Like, what, what's the what's the plan? That doesn't mean anything. There's something that you need to look at within your own classroom management strategies. If you have to remove that many kids out of your class, it's on you. So I I think if we start looking at alternatives, and again, again, I'm not a proponent of kicking kids out. That's not my thing. I'm I'm a I'm a big fan and supporter of restorative practices. I think that that is a a positive way. uh, In addition to PBIS, positive behavior intervention supports. I think those are are some methods that are alternatives to suspension. I, I think we need to really look at how do we keep kids in instead of what happens when our kids come out. I mean, the reality is if you and I, Josh, if I'm the teacher and you're the student and you and I don't get along and I kick you out for whatever reason, because I have my own biases and 
pretty much I'm waiting for a reason to kick you out of my class because yep. deep down inside, I may not tell anybody else, but I don't really, I don't like you, right? right? If that's a thing, then that child comes back the next day or whenever they return back to your class, when, when do we resolve yes. the issue that caused or led to the child to be removed from your class? How do we address that? Because often what happens is, so the kid gets removed from your class, they come back the next day or two days later, and you're supposed to pretend like as if nothing happened. Yep. And it's awkward. And you're, you see the stairs. Uh, maybe that student has said some other things about, about you and shared it with the class. And so now not only are you dealing with that child, but you're dealing with other children as well who are friends. And it's, it's not, to me, it's not the best situation versus being able to create a community within your classroom that supports one another and lifts each other up. And you take the time to genuinely develop these relationships with students where you sit in a circle and you just shoot the breeze. You say, hey, what is going on? What did you do this weekend? Go. And you have a talking stick or however you want to set it up to share. To me, that's so much better than to, to again, our tr- quote unquote traditional usual ways, which is to just kick kids out. Yep. I'm with you because that is the that is the missing piece right there is the relationship is broken and it is never restored between the teacher and the student. So yeah, it's never restored and you never address anything. It's just, okay, get out. And then they come back a couple days later. What if they did something to a child? So they hit another child and you kick them out, but they never get a chance to reconcile what happened or repair that harm. Nothing is done. It's just, okay, let's go back to business as usual. That is not the way that we should be going. You have an amazing podcast, and the one reason I love it is because you have some really hard-hitting topics, like topics that most podcasts don't even touch, and I, I don't know if it's because they're uncomfortable with the topics or they think it's too tough for them to even cover, because your podcast, more than any other, is, is one I'm like, man, I see the title, I'm like, I got to listen to that because nobody's talking about this right now, and it's so important. So how is it that you've come up with these topics, and, and why is it so important that you're touching on things that... Honestly, nobody else is is talking about. Okay, so I guess I would respond with, okay, so this is how I initially started, like 100 episodes ago, right? I'm a researcher, right? Right. And I love to read articles, journal articles centered around equity. That's that's my bread and butter. That's what I go to. And so I would just, you know, when I'm writing or if I'm just wanting to learn more, I would find an article that really sticks out, that stand, like resonates with me. I'm like, yo they got to be on my show. Yep. This is dope. And so that's kind of like how I start procuring my my episodes and, and guests. And if you read academic journals, man, some of those titles be off the chain. Like, yeah. the, like the research that folks are doing is amazing. There's some amazing work going out there. And I, I like I'm reading it and I'm like, man, people need to, to read this or learn about this as well. Yeah. And I kind of looked at it as a cliff notes, if you will, where sure. it's like, okay, I don't have access to this journal. It costs money. Or honestly, I don't have an hour of my time to read 30 pages for this journal. What's the condensed version? Oh, let me just reach out to the person that actually wrote this and ask them questions about the article, about their journal. And and that's kind of, that really legit is how I started doing stuff. And I still kind of utilize that kind of model where it's like, here's an article or here's a book rather than us sitting there reading the entire thing. What are the key points? What what are the main things? If If I was to spend 30 minutes with you, what would be my key takeaways? And that's how I how I started doing. Now it's a lot easier because you know people reach out to me and 
they kind of are familiar with the show and they're kind of familiar with the kind of content and the guests that we have on. And so people bring topics to me. I'm like, yo, or I'll get an email like, you got to have this person on the show. Or I'll get a tweet and someone tags me on the tweet and all that stuff. And it's like this topic. I'm like, yo, I don't, I've never talked about that. I don't know why I haven't, sure. but I haven't talked about it. You need to be on my show. So yeah, I, I'm really big on having conversations that aren't being had. No disrespect to other podcasters out there. That's just my style is I want to try to go beyond how to be a better person or a better educator. I want it to be more specific and address things that aren't always talked about. I mean, there's not a lot of equity podcasts out there. There's not a lot of people of color that are doing educational podcasts in general. And in general, really, podcasts as a whole, it's it's, it's not as diverse as we would like for it to be. I'm not afraid to talk about race and talk about, quote unquote, difficult conversations that some people might be afraid to talk about. To me, it's important to share this information. um, and, And I think that that's very valuable to me. No, I absolutely love it. And so I want everyone, one, to listen to your podcast. Um, but two, Sheldon, is there a, a particular episode that is maybe a favorite of yours that they can go to right now and, and listen to? Right now, my favorite one uh, as of today is Being Kind is Not yes. the Same as Anti-Racist yes. with Dr. Uh, Terry Watson. That is my favorite, probably my most popular one right now. There's another one, Victorine King, Dr. King, this, uh, what are the perceptions of poor students by teachers? Again, I, I might be butchering titles, but that's that's what it's about. Dr. King, she did the research on, she, she researched a district and got their pers- perspective on students that are living in poverty. And she shared her research with me and some very alarming details mm-hmm. that came out. I don't want to spoil it. You have to listen to it. But you, as you might look through it, there might be some other stuff that might catch your eye. But yeah, I, I definitely, those are the two that are off the top of my head are my favorite. I, I definitely have favorites. Yeah. So there's some that, you know, I don't know if you listen to your shows, your own shows. Sometimes, <laughs> Sometimes right? So yeah, I'm, I'm kind of that way too. But there's a few that I've listened to multiple times because I, again, I'm a learner as well. It's not just me, you know, feeling like I'm the the all all-knowing equity guy it's like no i'm i'm learning too yeah. like i'm edu- i need a pd certificate for this by the time i'm done so yeah. i i like to listen to some of the shows multiple times and the being kind is not the same as being anti-racist fantastic episode so definitely go check out sheldon's podcast but i also want to get them connected to you because you're doing a fantastic thing over the summer in july with your summit so could you just tell the listeners about that project that you got going on you know, I've, I've got a lot of district folks that reach out to me uh, and leaders that reach out to me and, and say, hey, OK, we're, we're in the thick of this COVID stuff. The school year's almost up. I don't know what the heck we're going to do <laughs> when school reopens. Like, what do we do next? And, you know, again, uh, a lot of things that I start to do is because I get asked a lot of the same questions. And so once I started to see that saturation coming in, I was like, OK, let's do a conference. Yeah. Let's talk about it. So the conference happening July 10th and July 11th is called Creating a New Normal. And that is, that's a live event. So normally when I do my my summits, they're, they're usually pre-recorded events. So I've already interviewed individuals. I've done the edits to the video and I post it and that's how we go. But this time I'm actually doing live sessions. We're going to do concurrent sessions. We're going to have some keynote. Well, I'm calling them plenary sessions. And uh, it's going to be fun. It's a two-day event. I look forward to it. I This is my first time ever. So I'm enjoying the process of learning how to get a conference, a live conference off the ground. 
I was always nervous to do it because, you know, I was afraid that people would cancel on me or people get sick or technology messes up on me. I'm, I'm a bit of a perfectionist. And my stuff always has to be on point. Mm-hmm. So I just got to be more lenient with myself and not beat myself up if things don't go as planned, because to me, it's, it's more of the experience and how much can our um, how much networking can take place and how much learning can take place as well. Well, I want to talk about that new normal, too, because obviously this is an unprecedented time for everybody and talking about equity there's obviously some people that haven't seen any difference in their lives really outside of having to stay home a little bit more where on the other side you know people are starving and and getting kicked out and evicted from their homes so you know we have a lot of students that will be going through a lot of trauma during this duration of distance learning so what are some strategies that any teacher or educator can use to kind of help our students come back to the school and and try to make that a, a seamless transition so I, I have a, a lot of thoughts on this <laughs> and <laughs> uh, my, my goal to go to right now is social emotional learning. I think that is the most important right now. I mean, like you mentioned, we got kids dealing with trauma, homelessness, uh, job uncertainty, food insecurity, which by the way, COVID-19 didn't bring these things. I mean, our kids yeah. been dealing with this for families been dealing with this forever. It's just, we're highlighting these more. These, we're having these conversations a lot more, it's, yeah. you know, a lot of this is being exacerbated, but it, it, it's been there. Right. Yeah. And so uh, I think social emotional learning is important. So if our schools, if we're school leaders and we don't have something in place, and I'm not saying just a cookie cutter approach. I'm talking about a, a full-fledged social emotional learning framework. If we're not utilizing any of those kind of things, then to me is where we need to put our focus. The temptation is, oh, well, we need to assess our kids and we need to test them and see where they're at and, you know, identify all the struggling readers. And, and you know, I know that's, that is what a lot of us are leaning towards, especially as leaders. You know, we want to know where our kids are, but I don't think that's where we, we need to focus. Yeah. If we have students that have been five, six, whatever, seven months without adequate, I mean, let's keep it real. This online learning is not on, you know, it's, yeah. it's not legit. I mean, let's, let's keep it real. So yeah. if we have kids that have been experiencing this or haven't experienced it at all, right, they haven't participated at all and they haven't seen their friends, and then we're going to sit them down and test them for the first few weeks of school. And then, and then that's pretty much what I mean, we're going to add to their trauma and anxiety. I mean, my 504 kids out there, I mean, it's dealing with all kinds of, you know, anxiety and, and, and challenges there. I mean, are we really going to do that? Yeah. Or are we going to really spend the first few days, first week or two of school and just really establishing our school culture and through play, through uh, engagement, through uh, social interaction? I mean, kids haven't seen each other for so long. I I think that's where we need to place our focus on things today. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Sheldon, I always like asking my guests this toward the end of our conversation is, you know, for any new or aspiring leader that's maybe starting their journey, what is some advice that you would give them? Find your mentor, number one. And number two, I would say it's not as hard as you think. <laughs> I would say it's not as hard as you think. I mean, if you're if you're an aspiring leader or if you're on the fence, and you're like, you know, I, I, maybe one day, I, I, three years from now, I'm not ready yet. Those kind of things, right? If, if that's where we're at, my thought would be just go for it. It's not as hard as you think. Find you a mentor, find you a good mentor, someone that you that's that's been in been in the game. I mean, like I said before, I, I reached out to a person that let me go. And it wasn't fun. It was not a great feeling to to get laid off and then come back and, and reach out to that same individual. So find you someone that you know has that experience, has the knowledge, 
And a lot of school districts are really good with pairing up our new, you know, doing like some kind of training and then kind of pairing them up with some mentors. So yeah, it's not as hard as, as, as you would think it would be. So definitely connect with Dr. Sheldon Akins. He's amazing. And so, you know, how can they connect with you on social media? So at Sheldon Akins, and that's E-A-K-I-N-S, either Twitter or Instagram. I do have a Facebook page. It's, I think it's at Leading Equity Center. You can also go to my website, www.leadingequitycenter.com. Uh, those are the primary bread and butters to, to reach me. Yes, and it's a fantastic resource. Make sure you go on there. There are so many things. You can find his podcast, webinars, and that wonderful summit that he's doing over the summer. Dr. Akins, it is such a pleasure to talk with you. It's been a pleasure to connect with you on social media too. Thank you again for being on the podcast. I appreciate you reaching out to me. Thank you.